Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I hope that you're all doing well. October is here, and that means Halloween is right around the corner. Who's ready for the best time of the year? Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My office has a basement. There's a reason that we don't go down there. Written by Horror Junkie 123. Hey John, what's that door lead to? I blubbered through a mouthful of fries. I jabbed my finger at a massive iron door at the far end of the break room. John paused mid-chew. He glanced down at the remnants of his lunch for a long, uncomfortable moment before resuming. That goes to the basement. No need to go down there, it's just a bunch of old records and cobwebs. I released the breath that I didn't know I had been holding. Sounds creepy. I've always kind of liked that stuff, honestly. It feels like urban exploring without... Darren, look me in the eyes and promise me that you won't go down there. The basement is off limits. John's icy stare sent a shiver rippling up my spine. I had only known the man for a week, but he had always requited my incessant questions with pleasant, friendly answers. This breaking character was unsettling. I promise. I muttered quickly, averting my gaze. Good. Now start wrapping it up, I need to teach you how to process invoices. John and I inhaled the remainder of our Big Macs before reluctantly returning to his desk. Time crawled past and I soon found my mind drifting back to the basement door. Why had John been so adamant about staying away from it? My curiosity had been piqued. I determined that I didn't know what was down there, but I would need to be cautious. I couldn't risk John or the big boss catching wind of my antics. Not this early. I passed the break room on my way out of the door. I hesitantly crept up to it. Pins and needles prickled my back and sweat beaded atop my brow. I anxiously raised my fist. To this day, I don't know what compelled me to do it. Hard in my throat, I knocked three times. Knock, knock, knock. I waited, pressing my ear up to the cool metal. Somebody answered my call. Someone on the opposite side of the door. I nearly leapt out of my skin, tearing through the hallway like a madman. I didn't stop running until I reached my car. I sat in the driver's seat, hyperventilating. I attempted to steady my palpitating heart as the adrenaline diffused from my system. What was that? Surely someone had to be pranking me. Perhaps a little hazing for the new guy. Yeah, that had to be it. I drove home, pushing the incident to the furthest recesses of my brain. 
The next day at work, I found myself back in the break room at lunchtime. John had a meeting that day, so he wouldn't be joining me. I took the furthest seat from the door. I avoided making eye contact with it for the best of my ability, but something about it tugged at my psyche. I threw my empty wrappers in the trash and shuffled up to the gray, looming frame. Curiosity gnawed at me like a piranha. Trepidation settled in my gut as I gathered my courage. If somebody was really playing a joke on me, I was going to get to the bottom of it. In a quivering, unsteady voice, I whispered, Hello? Hello, Darren. A malevolent, predatory bellow emanated from just beyond the entrance. I bolted back to my desk, quaking in my chair as I struggled to regain my composure. It knew my name. How did it know my name? I tried in vain to ease my mind, telling myself that it really was just a cruel trick. That seemed to quell my anxiety somewhat, but I failed to eradicate the thought completely. Why was somebody doing this? But more importantly, who was doing this? I needed answers. I decided to press John about it when I found a window. Later that day, my golden opportunity had presented itself. Hey John, we're going to have lunch with Dick Schwartz. He retired right before you started. And don't let this one get too crazy while we're gone. Mark said, shooting me a wink. No problems, boss. I'll keep an eye on this hooligan for you. John quipped, grinning at me. I watched as my co-workers intermittently scooped up their jackets and shuffled away, leaving John and me to hold up the fort. This was my chance. It was now or never. So, uh, John, do some of the older guys ever screw with the new hires? You know, like try to scare them or something. John pondered for a moment, brows furrowed in thought. You mean like change the screens on their monitors? Or maybe jumble up their papers a little bit? Yeah, they get a kick out of stuff like that every once in a while. I pursed my lips, choosing my next words carefully. No, I mean like trying to freak them out, like really get under their skin. John turned to me. I distinguished concern in his stern visage. Darren, is somebody messing with you? Tell me who it is and I'll put a stop to it. You're starting to worry me, kid. No, nobody's messing with me. Well, maybe, I don't know. I've been hearing noises from the basement. I haven't gone down there, but it's been creeping me out lately. John stared at his feet and then locked eyes with me. No one goes down there, Darren. The door is always locked. Just stay away from it, okay? I nodded, deciding to heed his advice, and John continued with my training. I muddled through the rest of the work week, opting to eat at my desk so as to spend as little time around the door as humanly possible. When I did need to pass the break room, I sprinted past it keeping it at a healthy distance at all times. I attempted to keep my head down and focus on my work, desperate to gain a bit of mental clarity. It didn't help. Everywhere that I went, I could swear people were laughing at me, mocking me, poking at my fears and insecurities like I was a proverbial punching bag, like I was just a puppet in their sick game, with some unknown force dangling at the marionette. It began to take a toll on me. Did Vince just shoot me a knowing smirk? Was he in on this? 
Now certainly he was smiling at someone else. Was Sherry giggling at me from across the room? Surely someone just told her a funny joke. Did John seriously ask me if I heard the voices too? No, no, he was just wondering if I was done updating the spreadsheet. Apprehensive thoughts joggled in my mind day in and day out, causing me to question my sanity. Just when I thought that I would reach my breaking point, I saw it. For once I had succeeded in clearing my conscience of the door, diligently burying myself in my work. John was handing me more and more responsibilities and it was beginning to pile up. I was sedulous, aiming to work ahead so that I could coast into the weekend. When I glanced up, everybody was gone. I was completely alone. I trudged past the break room, eager to plop down in bed and finish the Netflix series that I was binging. I peered at the door expecting to find it towering inconspicuously amongst the forlorn tables as per usual, but this time it was different. The door was hanging wide open. My heart began jackhammering against my ribcage. I trembled as I warily approached the gaping mall before me. It was as if the darkness was calling to me, beckoning me forward with its deceptive promises to soothe my blurry mind. Only the sound of blood pounding in my ears was audible amid the deafening silence. I had to go down there. I had to know. Hello? My call was swallowed by the dark, echoing through the ominous void. I received no response. My quivering legs mindlessly edged me closer. I begrudgingly took the plunge. I whipped out my phone, the meager light it produced, guiding my path. I found myself shrouded in inky black as sweat pooled beneath my arms. I vainly attempted to silence my footfalls, but each step sounded loud as thunder in the eerie stillness. I pressed onward, eventually reaching the bottom step. I scanned my flashlight around the expanse of the cavernous basement. Thick concrete columns dotted the terrain, casting baleful shadows upon the dusty linoleum. Dozens of cardboard boxes littered the floor. Some contained manila folders, but mostly on the ground in a discarded heap. Rows upon rows of blocky metal file cabinets lined the walls. I gravitated towards them, floating to the rusted silver bodies like the moon orbiting the earth. I illuminated the faded yellowing tags stuck to each, soaking in their hardly legible letters. Each one had a name. Kathy Benson, Jim Garrick, David Kim. My breath caught in my throat and my eyes grew wide as the light shone upon a fresh, newly printed label. Darren Miller. The cabinet creaked open and I began shoveling through files like a maniac. I plucked one from the bunch and read its title. Darren Miller, The Forest Incident. I hurriedly skimmed the article. It detailed the time that my childhood best friend Harry and I were playing in the woods behind his house, when I playfully had thwacked him in the ankle with a stick. Harry ended up in a cast, but he hadn't snitched on me, and I never told a soul. I grew lightheaded and gripped the top of the cabinet for support. How did they have this information? And why? I frantically rummaged through papers. My first kiss, my third speeding ticket, the time that I stole that bouncy ball from Target, 
It was all there, every last detail. Cold sweat enveloped me and I felt as though an ice pick had impaled my chest. I didn't feel safe anymore. Dread erupted through my body like a wildfire. And then I heard it. A shallow wet cough directly behind my ear. I froze as hot musty breath cascaded down my neck. A putrid, sour stench assaulted my nostrils. Slowly I turned and directed my beam behind me. The light radiating from my phone fell onto the wiry, emaciated frame of a man. His eyes were wild, pitch-black pupils darting back and forth. Angry red veins spiderwebbing through sickly yellow scleras. Uneven patches of scraggly gray hair sprouted from his head. Rough bald spots encompassing his scalp. He grinned wider than a Cheshire cat. Brown decaying teeth emitting a horrible acrid odor. But the thing that kicked my brain into overdrive wasn't his frightening appearance. It was the razor-sharp machete clutched tightly in his grasp. I did the only thing that my mind could think to do at that instant. I discreetly grabbed a wad of assorted papers and chucked them at his face. The momentary chaos allowed me a crucial three-second head start. I launched myself up the stairs, hoping, praying that somehow I would make it out of here in one piece. I burst into the break room and tore through the corridor, never once glancing back. Only when I had made it to the safety of my car did I allow myself a glimpse at the office building. As I furiously stomped on the gas, I saw the man standing at the door that I had just exited. He beamed at me and waved, still maintaining a death grip on the glimmering silver blade. I sped along the interstate like a man possessed, swerving through traffic and nearly crashing on multiple occasions. Somehow, I arrived home without a scratch. I quit my job the next day. I'll be late on rent, but I don't care. My ex-coworkers keep trying to contact me, but I block them on everything. But they still find a way. Random numbers barrage my phone at all hours. I'm at my wit's end. But the nail in the coffin, the crushing, bone-chilling reason that I fear I'll lose my sanity is the letter that I found tucked beneath my doormat. Scrawled in haphazard, barely legible writing. It simply read, Darren, it was a pleasure to meet you the other day. You'll be seeing me again very soon. Yours truly, X. There's nothing worse than waking up in a cold sweat, ruining a perfectly good night of sleep. If it's night terror as well, I can't help you there. But if you're just a naturally hot sleeper, then listen up. Ghost Bed is here for you. As the makers of the coolest beds in the world, Ghost Bed is your go-to for cooling mattresses, cooling pillows, and even cooling bedding. From their signature ghost ice fabric to patented technology that adjusts with your body temperature, every ghost bed mattress is designed with cooling in mind. So whether you want a plusher mattress that cushions your shoulders and hips, or a firmer option with exceptional support, your ghost bed will keep you cool and comfortable all night long. We love ghost bed here so we're excited to share an exclusive deal for our listeners. 
For a limited time, get 40% off all Ghostbed mattresses, plus get two luxury pillows. Just use promo code MrCreeps at ghostbed.com slash creepscast to take advantage of the exclusive offer. That's www.ghostbed.com slash creepscast with promo code MrCreeps. My town was wiped off the map, and you need to know why. Written by Dex Hopper. A small disclaimer, this happened a while ago. My memories of the following events were hazy just after it happened, so they may be even fuzzier now. Now onto the main reason that I'm telling you this. My town is a strange one. It's called Split City, though it isn't much of a city rather than a small town, and nobody outside of town will know what you're talking about if you ask for directions. We've been pretty much cut off from the world for 40 years. The only connections and communications that we have to the larger planet around us, we have is the internet. Other than that, we don't get visitors. New people don't come to live here and nobody has ever left. It wasn't always this way. There was a military installation here in the 1970s and 1980s, though it was abandoned in 1981. There was something about a contamination report being bad enough for even the shadiest parts of the government to say that the base was a major health code violation, and it was all locked down. Some people say they hear noises coming from inside every now and then, but I call BS on them every time. The people, chief among them being a boy my age at the time, 16 called Jay Williams, claimed that there was a monster in there and that whoever could go in there and come back out would be the bravest and toughest guy in the universe. They all claimed that they could do it, but once Jay said that they should actually do it, everyone backed out. One of them was Jay himself. He refused to say that he was making stuff up, but he also refused to back down from his claims that he was actually going into the bunker. That made me want to see how far he would take it so I obviously told him that I would go. The second person to join us was, funnily enough, Sarah Williams, Jay's twin sister. The two looked like gender-flipped versions of themselves, even though they were fraternal. She was a bit less egocentric than Jay, and we actually got along, but that was where the differences ended. The twins got along like a house on fire, and they were evil geniuses when working together. The twins were about 5 feet and 6 inches tall. They had jet black hair and brown eyes, with speckles of orange spread throughout their irises. Both of them were lanky, but Jay was a bit thicker, as he had been really into exercising lately. Sarah's hair reached her shoulders and was a very wavy, curly mess. Jay's hair was also curly, but it wasn't very long, and he had a fade that didn't look too bad on him. I usually didn't like that type of hairstyle, but he made it work somehow. The fourth person to express interest in entering the military bunker was a younger kid named Ryan Deacon. He was a little ball of energy and couldn't stop fidgeting. I suspected that he was ADD, but 
I thought it would look bad if I asked him if he was special or something, so I didn't say anything. Ryan was scrawny like a twig and was the shortest out of the group. His hair was dirty blonde and it was shaggy, with choppy ends and one of his prominent bangs cut short, giving me a feeling that he did it himself. Ryan had the bluest eyes that I had ever seen, and it kind of unnerved me if I looked him in the eye, so I avoided that when possible. Ryan brought his friend, Hurley Rawlinson, along with him. Hurley was a bit pudgier than was average, but not overly so. He had the same haircut as Ryan, which made me think that they both did it on a dare or something. While I'm going through describing our party, I should probably talk about myself. My name is Caleb, and I was probably a bit taller than average for my age, rocking a whole six feet of height. I had chocolate brown hair, which was unruly, which meant that I often gave up trying to brush it in the morning, letting it settle into the curly natural style that I had most days. My eyes were blue, and I had a few bits of orange in them, just like the twins. I had read somewhere that it was an indicator of autism or being on that spectrum, which lined up with a few traits for all three of us. I was kind of bookish, being interested in urban legends and modern myths. It was my passion, and I would say that I knew every piece of knowledge that there was available to me. I talked about it often, which annoyed the few friends that I had and drove off potential new ones, so that was cool. So, we had our party, but we needed a way to get into the bunker without being seen or getting in trouble with our parents. Hurley came up with the brilliant plan to tell each of our parents that we were sleeping over at the twins' house, and the twins would tell their parents that they were going to sleep over at a different friend's house, so we all had our alibis. In reality, these excuses were very flimsy as it was. And if even one parent wanted to do a reasonable thing such as call to check in on their kid, it would all fall apart. But it was the best thing that we had, so we stuck with it. Just like that, we were standing at the peak of the tallest hill in town, which was the entrance to the bunker. I've been saying bunker because it wasn't a traditional above-ground base. It's more than that hill was placed there to mask the bunker. The bunker went deep into the ground, deeper than even the hill's base. Nobody truly knew how low it went. I had heard a couple of stupid kids say that the bunker went to the earth's core itself and was trying to mine it for resources. It sounded cool, but nothing could withstand the heat, so it was a bust. And Jay was ready to get going. We were all in winter coats because we knew it would be freezing cold inside. We knew that because the bunker had actually been opened up before, but only once. Nobody ever went inside. But they looked in and saw something that they didn't ever tell anybody that they didn't immediately swear to secrecy. He had described it as bone-chilling in both the mentally scarring and the physically cold senses. The twins had coats that were largely the same, with a few major differences so that we could tell them apart if it got too dark to simply look at their face and see who it was. Jay's coat was red like his scarf. It was a gradient, with the bottom of his coat basically being black, turning into a bright red color as it reached the collar. Sarah's was the same except with green. She had a hairpin that was the same color, 
and I thought how cute it was that they had a theme, but wanted to come off as these tough, urban explorer type people. Ryan and Hurley both had simple grey winter coats on, but they were easy to tell apart due to their height difference. I'm fairly sure that Hurley was closer to my age than he was to Ryan's, but that the only friend he could make was Ryan. I felt that, so I decided not to bring any of that up. Finally, my coat was black only because it had white trims, giving me a sort of reflective vest look. It would be easy to center on me, and I was okay with being that guy for our group. We checked over our gear. We had our flashlights, phones, sleeping bags, blankets, and food and water stuffed into our backpacks. I had the food, Sarah had the blankets, Jay had the sleeping bags, and Ryan had our water since it would be bad if one person had both and got lost. And Ryan held the batteries for our flashlights. Hurley held the portable chargers for our phones and I was fairly sure that was the most important job of all. If we lost communication, we were dead. Not wanting to hold in his need for movement and energy, Jay opened the door in a massive, showy heave that went far over his head. The door opened upwards, though it was hard for him to do alone, and I ended up having to help him get it past the peak of its swing so that it would fall to the ground. Once we got it open, we had to decide who would go first. I could feel the temperature drop by a good 10 degrees when we opened the door, and I was sure that it was much, much colder inside. We all looked at Jay. What? You want me to go first? He asked. Obviously, idiot. You're the one that was talking so high and mighty about how they were going to do it alone, so you might as well prove to us that you're good as your word and go first, I answered. Jay sighed heavily and knelt at the opening in the ground. It was circular so we could all have looked down and seen what he saw, but we didn't. He gazed into the darkness that seemed to stretch forever downward, but it clicked for him to use his flashlight, like a person with a brain. He clicked it on and it became so much easier, as if that was its intended use, to see better in the dark. Jay looked down again and explained some words in French that I didn't understand. The twins' mother was French and she had been steadily teaching them the language since they were about eight. They were 16 now, so they were pretty much fluent in it, much to my dismay. They often used it to make fun of people in private, while saying it right to their face. Anybody could simply pick up a French to English dictionary, but that would ruin their fun and that would be a crime against humanity. There's a ladder. We could climb down it, but that would take too long, so I suggest that we... Jay was cut off by me. We are making a ladder slide again. You know that James broke his leg the last time that we tried? I told him sternly. Jay grumpily sat on the ground, mumbling something about me taking over from him and stealing the spotlight. I laughed a bit and took a look down the hole for myself and true to Jay's words. There was a ladder that stretched further down than I could see, but it was the only way that we knew how to get into the bunker so we had to use it, and I sat as much to the party. What? That sucks. I guess we have to though. Sarah agreed. I went in first, followed by Sarah, Ryan, Hurley, and finally for some reason Jay. It was almost like he was BSing us back at school. 
I laughed at the thought of his frightened whimpers being the thing that got us found if we were to get lost down here. We made our way down. The task wasn't easy because of our slightly restrictive coats and our backpacks stuffed to the point of bursting. Eventually, about five minutes after first climbing down, we reached a new level in the bunker, it seemed. The cold had intensified and I guessed that it was now about 50 degrees Fahrenheit. I decided that we should take a break after 10 minutes. We had noticed that every 10 meters or so there was a small platform that had a door in the wall. We had never stopped at one because Ryan had asked if there could still be people down there working and that dissuaded us from checking what was behind the doors. We sat down on the platform. Jay went to open the door to our left but I stopped him with a yell. What man? Jay asked. Don't go in there, we have no idea if this place is radioactive or something and going in this deep is already uncharted territory. I reasoned. Oh, screw that, I want to explore, Jay said. Jay threw the door open and waltzed through it, moving into the darkness. I tried to grab onto his leg, but he moved too fast for me. Sarah chased after him, so that was two out of our party that was gone. This was happening too fast for me to think rationally, so I chased after them as well. The three of us ran down the corridor, shouting at each other to shut up and agree with whatever we were all saying. It was confusing for a moment, but Jay stopped in his tracks while looking back at us. But he wasn't looking right at us, he was looking behind us. I stopped and turned around, hearing the sounds of Sarah crashing into Jay, and saw that the door was slowly closing. It was moving, but I couldn't see Ryan or Hurley moving it. I started running back to it. And as I was sprinting toward the shrinking light, I saw a head peek around the door. The head looked like a person's, but it was white as a sheet of paper. Its eyes were beady and glowing yellow. It had the fangs of a spider, and the thing's jaw was unhinged like a snake. I couldn't see any more of it than that, but I'm sure that it was a disgusting amalgamation of creatures that broke numerous laws of nature, science, and the universe. The door closed just before I got to it. I tried to push it open, but it wouldn't budge. I don't recall there ever having been a lock on the door, but this thing had somehow locked the door from the outside. What the heck? Jay asked. I don't know, there was something there and it closed the door. It's locked, I said, trying my hardest not to panic. There was a thing? Sarah asked. It was this nasty looking thing with a jaw that opened way too wide. Its eyes were glowing and I think it smirked at me. I yelled. Well, we're screwed, Jay said, which didn't help the tiny panic attack that was happening with me in the corner. No, we still have our phones right. That means that we can call Ryan and Hurley. If they don't pick up, we'll call somebody on the outside to come and get us. Do we know what level we're on? Sarah thought out loud. That's brilliant. We're on sub-level 30, and there's about a 30-foot gap between levels. So that means we're about 900 feet in, give or take a couple dozen feet. I did the math. It added up to me and Sarah wasn't arguing. What? That's insane. We can't be almost a thousand feet underground. The hill isn't that big. Jay screamed. You have to remember that the hill is probably just to cover for what they built down here. 
Maybe they wanted to start at ground level, but the people in charge said that it was too deep, and they had to start a bit above ground to satisfy their bosses. Sarah offered. Yeah, that checks out. We need to see if we can get any phone service down here first, I said, pulling out my phone. We all checked our phones and none of us could use anything other than a flashlight on the clock, which told me that it was midnight on the spot. I almost laughed at how weird it was that we got trapped, just as the witching hour came upon us. I didn't laugh, though if I did the twins would surely think that I was having a psychotic break or something. Okay, what do we do next? I asked. Jay and Sarah ruminated for a moment and they both looked at each other with glee in their eyes, which worried me. The only time that this had happened was when the two had been asked to participate in the demolition of their grandfather's house after his passing. If we can get a big enough object, we could try breaking the door open. If not, we can try the same thing except for sharp things, Jay said. Exactly, Sarah agreed. That's insane and you both need professional help. We are going to destroy this place. We need to find a safe way out and I think the only way to do that is to explore and look around to see if there could be an elevator or something. Or a satellite phone. I said, looking down into the corridor. What's a satellite phone? Jay asked. It's a phone that doesn't work with cell towers. It connects straight to satellites in orbit. Maybe we can use that to contact somebody on the outside. I explained. Yeah, that's a good idea, Caleb. I think finding proper communication gear is our top priority, not wrecking the place, Sarah said. Agreed, I said, shooting Jay a dirty but playful look. He returned it with a grin, though he still did look like he understood that he had to be careful. We started walking down the halls and soon came to find out the place was basically a maze. There were a bunch of offices, laboratories, and bathrooms, but no phone that worked. No computers that would turn on, nothing. We walked around for about two hours proudly before we started getting tired. Another ten minutes after we had agreed that we should stop and get some rest soon, we found it. The stairwell. Jay jumped for joy and Sarah and I awkwardly hugged each other. We found that the door was open and that it didn't require some kind of identification, so we might have had our ticket out of there already. The problem was Ryan and Hurley. It was possible that they ran away and that the creature I saw was just my nerves playing up and my eyes playing tricks on me in a low-light environment, but I could swear that I saw its shadow, its snarl, its sickeningly yellow rotted teeth. I knew it was alive and I could smell it. It smelled like urine and blood with a little bit of crap mixed in. It smelled like it had been down here the whole 40 years that the bunker had been locked down. This thing that I saw, the monster, was probably the reason that nobody came down here and was ever seen again. The reason the government had left it. It was probably what was behind the radio silence that we received from the world. I was sure that the government would know this thing existed. It would lock down the site and dissuade anyone from going within a hundred miles. It was the reason we were split city. My town had been wiped off the maps all that time ago, and it was because there was a monster living under us. 
I had one question left to answer which coincidentally opened up so many more for consideration with it. What is this thing? Where did it come from? Was it made, and if so, by who? Are there more of them? I realized that I had been in a sort of trance, stuck in my head as these truths came to me. Jay and Sarah were already looking up, trying to see light at the top of the stairwell. There wasn't any, which meant that we hadn't been down there for nearly as long as it seemed. I checked my phone's clock again and confirmed that it was only 2.15am. We decided that we couldn't wait any longer and started making our way up. By the time that we had gone up about seven flights, I started thinking out loud. The silence was torture, and I could swear that I heard breathing that wasn't human, so I needed to distract myself or I would have a heart attack. Do you think Ryan and Hurley are okay? I asked the twins. They were silent for a long time as we continued climbing the stairs to freedom. After a few minutes, they replied. I think we have bigger things to worry about, Jay said. I'm not saying that we should just forget about them and go home, but we can't go back down there. Not when the exit is so close, and that thing that you described is still there, assuming that it actually exists. Sarah agreed with her brother. Do you think I'm lying about the monster? I saw it, Sarah. I looked it in its beady little eyes and saw it blink. So it couldn't have been a light on the wall or something. And besides that, do you really think that Ryan or Hurley would close the door and lock us inside? I didn't see or hear them, so maybe they got out. I asked. God, God. What does that mean? She asked me. You know, the monster got them and killed them. Jay answered for me. What? Sarah was worked up now. I paused. I could see a door at the very top of the stairwell now that we were closer. I told the twins of my discovery and we started running up the stairs, despite the burning in our legs and reached the door in about a minute. We stood in front of the door not daring ourselves to go through it. I sensed the hesitation coming from the twins and I spoke. Are we really going to leave them? I asked. They both looked at each other, seeming to perform a feat of telepathy since they seemed to come to a consensus without talking or my input. No, they said in unison. Why? If we leave Ryan and Hurley down there and they die, then that's on us. Whatever that monster does to them will be our fault. You're really okay with that? I asked them. Yes, Jay replied without a moment to think about it. I looked at him and scoffed. I know you are. You don't have a self-sacrificial bone in your body. I'm talking to you, Sarah. Could you sleep tonight knowing that you left our friends to die? I turned to Sarah, who looked like she wanted to cry. I... I don't know. I don't know what to. She cried. This is stupid. Let's just go. Jay said, grabbing a hold of Sarah's hand and stepping forward. I put my hand on Jay's shoulder. We made eye contact for a second before I looked away and opened the door. As soon as it opened, cool, fresh air flowed into the small space. It was warmer the higher that we went and the outside air was refreshing. I wanted so badly to go, but I couldn't do it knowing that it would be letting the two boys be still trapped inside die. 
Suddenly, there was a loud bang from below us. We all looked at each other and came to a conclusion that was equally true for every one of us. If we stay, we die. If we don't come to a decision, we'll die. If we leave, we live. They're probably already dead, Caleb. Move on and move it. Jay yelled as he sprinted down the hill with his sister at his side. I conceded. I ran outside and bolted the door shut and booked it down the hill with the twins. There were no pros to staying and all the cons in the world. It was a simple decision to make after we had heard that monster coming up. I knew that it was approaching from the sounds getting slightly louder as it continued. I knew that if we were to stay, I would be dead as soon as I made that choice. After that, we went our separate ways. The twins went home and I made my way home as well. As soon as I was through the door, I received all the calls and messages that I had gotten when I was down there. It was like a robot with a stutter. That was probably what let my parents know that I was home and that the fact that I did and not try to make any movements quieter at all. They rushed at me, my mother hugging me profusely and my father asking where I had been all night. Uh, the meetup was cancelled and it took me a long time to get home. I didn't get any of your calls because my phone had died. I lied to them. I went to my room after that. I searched the few websites that there were for looking at installations in small towns and I didn't find anything. I also looked for the name of the town, the real name. Split City is just a nickname that we gave the town, after we had all had our other tethers to the world cut. I think the real name was something like Lakeview, named for our multitude of freshwater lakes that were a dream to swim in on a summer afternoon. I didn't find even a single mention on it anywhere. It was as if we didn't exist, and the space that we occupied in Idaho was barren. I didn't see anything about hills serving as entrances to hidden bunkers either. That part was a bit of a stretch, since people saw them mount the dirt all that time ago, so I think it was kind of an open secret as to what they were doing with it. Naturally, Reddit was my next stop. I looked all over this place as well, looking for any sign that we exist, but there wasn't anything. I thought to post here where people believe the strange happenings in the world. People would listen and know never to go to Split City. That all happened in one night, but you don't know the whole story. I've told you half of my experience in that godforsaken bunker because I went back the following day. I was going to find Ryan and find Hurley, hopefully send that thing that lives down there to its maker, and get out as fast as I can. I was standing at the door to the underground bunker again checking the time. The sun was setting so I didn't need much confirmation, but it was a habit. I was on the outside, but that was soon going to change. I steeled my nerves and I opened the door. It was like walking into a room where they store frozen meat, except the meat down there is very much alive. I know, I've seen it. I had a metal baseball bat clipped onto my backpack and it was too cold against the skin on the back of my neck. As I stepped inside, I heard a voice behind me. I recognized it and turned around to see Sarah standing there, hands in her coat and looking at me like I was some sort of psychopath. 
Considering that, I was about to willingly go back into a shut-down underground government office with a monster roaming around inside that might have already eaten my friends. Maybe I was. You're going back down, she said. Yeah, I can't let Ryan and Hurley be killed because of my inaction. It goes against everything that I am, I clarified. Well then, that makes two of us, Sarah replied, picking up the backpack that had been lying next to her. What? No, you can't come back in with me. It has to be me. I told her, but she wasn't stopping. Why is that? She asked. You made your choice, that's why. I yelled. I hadn't meant to, but it just came out. Sarah was stunned. Jay couldn't have made you leave if you didn't want to. You let him drag you out of that bunker and go home like our friends aren't stuck down there. Maybe they're dead, but I'm not taking that chance. I need to make sure that they aren't hurt. If they are dead, then I'll probably be killed, but if they're alive, I can make sure that they stay that way and I'm not passing up that opportunity. I rambled. I understand. I've come to make amends with you, Ryan, and Hurley. I feel horrible about what I did and I want to correct it if I can. That means going with you so I'm coming whether you like it or not. Sarah said, locking eyes with me. We were the same age, but her emotional maturity sometimes made me think that she was a few years older. Jay was also very stable, but that was because he had the emotional range of a two-year-old, and he was disqualified from compliments tonight. The twins, as similar as they were, were also quite different. More and less mature and ultimately... I got along better with Sarah. That said, nothing of their interests and hobbies. Simply that Sarah was more agreeable and more likely to come to a compromise instead of arguing the point for hours until we both lost. I clicked my stopwatch to time our adventure and we went in. It was cold, maybe even colder than before. And it only got worse as we went further, deeper into the building and descending via the stairwell into what was my personal heaven and hell at the same time. It was a beautiful chance to see something similar to the urban legends and creatures that I studied like a religion, but it was also a prime chance to be killed by an amalgam of beings that were simply not supposed to exist in the same body. After about half an hour of walking on the stairs, we came to a stop at sub-level 30, the place where we had been trapped the night before. I opened the door to the office space and saw it exactly as it had been. We made our way, making the exact opposite turns that we had last night, to get back to the door to what I assumed was a decommissioned elevator shaft. We had entered through this elevator shaft last night, and our two missing party members had gone missing from the platform outside of sub-level 30. So that was our first stop. We reached the locked door that had split our group and I was still unable to open it by myself. Hey, you got any ideas on how to open it? I asked, looking around for long and thin objects. Sarah got closer to the door and inspected the lock. While she did that, I was walking around trying to spot something that I could pry the door open with, like a slat or something. From the looks of it, this lock is pretty old. If you hit it with your bat, it'll break, Sarah said, stepping away from my target. I rolled my eyes as a thought came to me. Oh great, Jay's idea was right, I feel cheated, I said, clasping the bat with both hands. 
I raised it above my head and brought it down hard. I heard the sprinkling of metal on the floor before I could turn my head down to see it. It shattered like glass, the steel having eroded over the 40 years between when it was last used and now. Carefully pushing the door open, I saw that Ryan and Hurley's things were gone. There wasn't a sign that they were ever there, and I thought that maybe they had taken the chance to get out and climbed back up. But there would be crumbs since I knew that Ryan was spilling them all around him while he ate some of the food we brought with us. But there wasn't anything. Someone or something had cleaned it. This caused me to start a small freak-out session on that platform. Was the monster intelligent? Were there still people down here? Did the boys clean it before they left? And are currently hanging out in an ice cream shop, wondering where I'm at. That seemed right, given my luck lately. I showed the scene to Sarah, and she was stomped. I pulled a flashlight from my backpack and shined it around, trying to look for anything that might help, but when I saw it, the monster, and I had almost missed it, but I saw that it was clinging to the wall in front of me, looking at me with a sly grin, almost like it was expecting me. Shining my light back on it, I saw what it looked like. Before, I had only seen its face, but now I was seeing all of it, and it was absolutely horrifying. It had the head of a man, barely, and the unhinged jaw with yellow rotted fangs was the same as before. I saw that most of it was normal human biology. Only the limbs had been further modified. The thing had scars running along its body. The four most prominent scars ran from the corners of its mouth along its cheeks, and down its neck in the case of the bottom ones. It looked like they were barely staying there, like keeping his jaw on his face was a conscious effort. It had claws, sharp enough to cut through steel to allow it to cling to the wall like that. Its hands were far larger than any human could be, and its feet were the same. I guessed that it allowed the creature to move faster and hopefully not hit harder. The rest of it was lanky and pale as you would expect from a creature that had been locked underground for four decades. We made eye contact and I froze. It had the same blue eyes as Ryan. I distinctly remembered that the creature had glowing powerful yellow eyes, but this thing's eyes had the exact same shade that I had never seen anywhere but in my friends. The thing that used to be Ryan now skittered away, climbing further down the elevator shaft and retreating into the darkness where we couldn't see it. My legs gave out. I dropped to the ground and my hands were shaking. Ryan, come back, I mumbled, but Sarah heard it just fine. What? You're not making sense. You need to calm down and breathe, Caleb. Breathe, Sarah said, holding my hand still. I saw it last night and the thing's eyes were yellow. This new one had blue eyes. Ryan's blue eyes. I told her once I had calmed down from my panic attack. Crap, what do you think it means? Sarah asked, dumbfounded. I don't know, maybe this thing is a mimic or something, I offered. What is that? She asked again. I sat up and leaned against the wall, pulling my backpack onto my front and rifling through it. It's a creature that, once it kills something, can mimic aspects of a living thing. 
It might be a few individual parts of that being or it could simply change its shape into the thing it killed. It could have killed Ryan and Hurley and mimicked some of their traits, like Ryan's eyes. But I didn't see any other differences in it from last night to now. It's skinnier, I guess, but I trailed off. Ryan was practically a twig, Sarah recalled. I didn't like where this was going. You are insane that you think that's Ryan and there are two of those monsters running loose in this bunker, are you? Sarah asked, standing up. No, I answered. Good, I would think you're going crazy if you did, she said, chuckling slightly. I think there's three, I clarified. Sarah groaned and started walking back to the stairwell. Well then, I think the best thing we can do in this situation is to leave and never come back. She told me, lingering at the doorway. I need to know, I said back. She paused. What, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I thought you said that you want to stay like a crazy person. Sarah called me out. I know it's insane, and I know that you don't want to stay here anymore. I mean, I don't want to either, but I need to know what's happening here. If I don't, it'll eat me alive until I come here again. And I don't want to explain to my parents when I'm caught sneaking out a third time in less than a week. I explained. She seemed conflicted. But I didn't and couldn't know what was going on inside her head. I wasn't some supernatural creature, able to lurk in the dark and invade people's minds. I was me and I was going to do what I could do to find out what they were so I could end them, finally putting the bunker to rest properly. I voiced that thought and it got Sarah to resign herself to accompany me on my journey deeper into the bunker. I stood up and we hugged out our frustrations. It was kind of awkward for me to be this close to a girl twice in as many days, but I was able to get over it. Then we got to the stairwell and I knew that the sun had set all the way, and that it was now as dark as it was in here as it was out there. I cracked a glow stick and we started going down the stairwell. We got another ten levels down before realizing that we still couldn't see the bottom. Sarah and I stopped and discussed our options for sleeping. We could either sleep on the cold hard floor, or we could find a staff room somewhere and use the couches that they could have. I would definitely like a few pillows over laying down on steel or linoleum, so we agreed to find a staff room and camp out in there. Their food wouldn't be good if there even was any, but we were lucky that I brought food. The problem about that was, as we came to find... That I had only packed for me so we only had enough food for one person to last them a week. If they were practically starving themselves. What we had was enough to last the both of us three days if we ate even a few bites of it each day. On sub-level 40 we got the door open and quickly rushed inside. We barricaded the door with a few couches and cabinets. Once we were sure that none of the monsters could break in we got comfortable. We made sure to make as little noise as possible as we set up our sleeping places. We sat on the ground and I pulled out all the food that we had so that I could properly ration our portions. What do you want out of this? I asked, pointing to my Snickers bar, a bag of Skittles, a can of already baked beans and an apple. 
Sarah stroked her chin as if she was thinking. I knew that she was disappointed in my planning skills, but she couldn't be more disappointed in me than I was. Since now, I had to provide for a second person, something that I hadn't even begun to plan for when I was thinking the previous night. I think I'll be fine with Skittles, chef, she joked. I laughed, but only to distract myself from the fact that Sarah was going to starve for the time that we were going to be down here. I didn't know how long we would be there, and I was sure that we were going to run out of food before we were done. Yeah, well, I'll be over here with my Snickers bar, so take that, I said, snatching the bar from the pile. It was probably the second most nutritious thing in the room, after the beans. We sat like that, me eating the Snickers bar and Sarah eating half the bag of Skittles until we were ready for sleep to come. I think she hoped that she would wake up at home with this whole adventure having been a really bad dream. It wasn't a dream though, it was a nightmare. Sarah woke up with a start at about 11 o'clock. She was sweating and it was likely that she had a nightmare, but I found it hard to believe her mind could supply something worse than this. I guess that she could have been simply reliving her own memories, but that only happens in movies and stuff. After a while, I noticed that Sarah wasn't going back to sleep, so I decided to try and help, however awkward it was going to be. I sat up, which startled her, which I immediately apologized for. Do you want to talk about what you dreamed? I asked, leaning forward. Yeah, I had the worst nightmare. I imagined that we hadn't found a place to sleep and that we had gotten found by those monsters. Except there were so many of them. There were easily 20 of them. When I looked up, I saw that Jay had come with us. He was ripped apart and then I watched you get torn to shreds, Sarah told me. I was horrified to say the least. I felt some adrenaline work its way through me and fade as quickly as it came. I pictured myself actually trying to fight those things and being ripped apart, limb by limb until I was a bloody stomp. Watching them eat my legs until I died of blood loss or shock, whichever came first. I'm sorry that you had to see that, even if it was just a bad dream. I promise that will never happen. Jay isn't even here, so it can't happen like that. I said. It wasn't scary because I care about Jay. It was scary because I care about you too. You're kind of my best friend right now. She shot back. What do you mean? We've only been talking because of your brother. If Jay and I weren't friends, then we wouldn't be friends either. I told her, slumping down into my makeshift bed. That isn't true. You're awesome and you risked your life to help your friends. I mean, they're dead now and mutated into some weird chimera, but that was still cool for you to even think about. Nobody I know would have done this purely out of selflessness except you. That's incredible, and I think you're definitely friend material. She reassured me. You think all that. I'm just a guy, I said. Well, let's agree to disagree. You think you're a greasy nerd, and I think you're a hero. Sarah plainly stated. Whoa, 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 whoa. I never said the words greasy or nerd, I argued. I regretted talking so loud after an extremely loud screech came from right outside the door. It made Sarah cover her ears and it sounded as if it was inside our heads. 
The door shook and with it, the massive barricade that we had made. It didn't look like we were going to be getting any more sleep. Sarah packed up all of her things and I looked around for a weapon. I saw a few things that I could use to impale the thing with. A pool stick, a few regular kitchen knives, and I still had my baseball bat. So that was more than a few weapons that were immediately available to me. The door was ripped off the hinges and tossed aside, which was impressive since it was all steel. Heavily aged and probably rusty steel, but it was more than a human could do, so I was still scared out of my mind. I saw that it was a different monster than the others because of the creature's piercing green eyes. It was also a couple of shades darker than the others, which made me believe that it was younger and had less time to settle into its new form and fade from the tan color that Hurley's skin was to the absolute white that the other two had. It was also a bit thicker than the others, which fit Hurley to a T. I watched as this new monster ripped our barricade down in one try, utterly crushing whatever confidence that I had in myself. The creature was in the room, but I had hidden Sarah in a bathroom in the back, so she was safe as long as she stayed quiet. It lunged at me, but with a bat in my hand, I swung. I landed that swing on the thing's head, and it sprawled on the ground for a moment, trying to regain its bearings. Using the distraction, I ran to the knives and picked up two, keeping my body facing the monster and sheathing one for later use. The creature jumped at me and I attacked. I jabbed at the monster with my knife, but the blade broke in half, which also twisted my wrist at an angle that it was probably sprained. I dropped the handle and clutched my wrist. Well, that was a bust, I muttered. The blade hadn't affected the creature at all. It was like it was iron or steel and not the crappy old military base variety, but the good stuff. I simply couldn't hurt the thing. The monster knew this and got ready for the kill shot. The monster stood tall and opened its mouth. And when I say opened its mouth, I mean that the thing's jaw unhinged, and the scars on its face, the same as the creature that once was Ryan, opened and unfurled to let me see the true horror of it and I came up with the perfect name for the creature that I could put in my bestiary for paranormal entities. The Splitters. These monsters could unhinge their jaws and opened up their mouths and throats to allow them to swallow a human whole. They were big enough to do the deed, and it was likely that their bodily fluids were corrosive, allowing for a smoother meal. They could apparently transform humans into another version of them, though how they did was unknown to me at the time. While it had its face open, I got distracted and impulsively poked these splitters exposed to flesh with my baseball bat. The splitter jerked back and seemed to be in pain from the shivering that racked its body. I realized the splitter's weakness. Their skin was pretty much indestructible, but if you could bypass the outer shell and get straight to the flesh inside, then they were fragile. I guessed that the creature had adapted to be resistant to attacks, but it was never attacked from the insides, with things like poison or a bomb implanted in their brain, something like that. The splitter's jaw unhinged itself again and it roared at me. I had never heard a sound like that in my life. It sounded like it could have been words, but it was in a language that I couldn't understand. And like multiple people were talking at once, it was very disorienting. 
That allowed the splitter to pounce. It tackled me and we both fell to the ground. The splitter was drooling on my face. I guess it was time to test out that corrosive bodily fluids theory of mine. It stang badly. The stinging was unbearable and I screamed bloody murder as I slid myself out from under the splitter and let it fall to the ground. I could feel my skin peeling away as I pulled out the knife and stalked toward the splitter with what I could only guess is an aura of murderous intent. I felt the corrosion subside as I finally managed to get a good hit on the splitter, sinking my knife upwards into its brain from the inside of its own mouth. It felt great to know that I had killed such a powerful creature, but my hand was also burning even more than my face which was already screwed. I screamed victorious and I passed out. I don't know how long I was passed out for but when I woke up my injuries were healed. My wrist was a bit stiff but I figured that it would work itself out with time. I was more worried about my face and my other arm though. I had been drenched in the corrosive saliva of the splitter that was still sprawled across the floor where I had killed it. Sarah, who had been tending to my wounds judging by the basic first aid kit on my side, noticed that I was awake. She started to fret over me. Don't move, you'll mess with your dressings, she said. You know first aid? I asked. The worst of the damage was above my nose and I could feel the differences in how the fabric felt on the undamaged skin and the scar tissue. A very basic first aid, but yeah. I had to make sure that the splitter was dead before I started treating you, so that was fun. Sarah complained. You're calling it a splitter as well, I asked, confused as to how she knew of the conclusions that I had come to. You talk in your sleep, she said, failing to hide a smirk. Oh, I said, the flush that came over my face aggravating my burns. Sarah proceeded to show me my arm. It was horribly scarred, but it was better than I had imagined. I had a lot of mobility, though closing my fist still hurt a lot. She wouldn't let me see my face. I think it hadn't written out the recommended time the kid said to leave my bandages on. I was able to get set up and move around, and I quickly saw to it that the splitter was tossed down the hole in the stairwell, falling until it had reached the bottom, probably tearing the body into pieces in a gruesome display. I didn't know because I couldn't actually see the bottom, despite my eyes being uncovered. I hadn't suffered too much from loss of vision. Only certain spots in my field of vision were spotty or blurry. We were able to hear the splitter's body impact the ground in about 10 seconds, however, which meant we were close to the bottom even if we couldn't see it. I felt good about that because we had almost no food for what was supposed to be a simple in-and-out mission for one person. When we packed up our things, Faith restored that this adventure was actually possible to complete, not that we had any in the first place. Sarah took most of the weight since I was still recovering, and we set off down the stairwell and kept going until we couldn't anymore. My phone's clock said that it was 10.30am and that I had guessed that we had gotten about 3 hours of good sleep before the splitter showed up. I had gotten a few more hours in because of blacking out, but Sarah looked ready to drop after 20 flights of stairs. Are you okay? We can go back if you want, I said. 
No, we need to get to the bottom of this. Literally, she countered. Yeah, but we could always use a different staff room again and you can get some actual sleep, I offered. No, that isn't fair to you. I can keep going, so don't worry about it. Sarah said before trailing off and leaning forward. She was falling. Crap. We were on the flat, concrete between flights, and she was going to fall onto the stairs and be seriously hurt if I didn't do something. I rushed forward, ignoring my burning legs and got in front of Sarah, just as her legs gave out. I caught her, but she was unconscious, so I was going to have to carry her down a couple more flights. I managed to get to the door of sub-level 57. I barricaded the door again this time with stronger materials and I actually fixed them to each other and helped Sarah get to sleep on the couch in that floor staff room. I don't know when I fell asleep but I woke up lying next to Sarah. It was strange because I was on the floor curled up in a blanket while she was supposed to be on the couch with a bunch of pillows and stuff. Naturally, I was uncomfortable. Sarah and I did have a history. We've known each other for a long time thanks to Jay. He and I met as toddlers and he finally made me talk to her when I was 10. I had always wanted to talk to her but Jay saw that one of those stupid childhood crushes was blooming so he shut it down quickly. After that, I just quietly pined after Sarah for a few years until she snuck away from Jay and told me that she had felt the same things that I was feeling for her. It blew my mind that somebody could be that interested in me, and so I asked her out on a date. This was when we were 14, so the only place that I could take a girl to was the roller skate rink at the edge of town. She didn't show up. I talked to her the next day and she said that it had been a prank from the other girls, but that she was forced into it. I forgave her but ended up correctly guessing that that group of girls was becoming a major pain in the butt for everyone, so I asked her to stop talking to them. Sarah agreed and started hanging out with her brother and I full time, but it was still weird between us. My affection for her had withered slightly, but I still respected her. She never acknowledged our little incident again, and so I didn't either. Jay didn't seem to know anything that happened, so we simply went on about our lives. That was about two years ago, though, and I was over that. I never thought to ask if she really did have those feelings, but it was irrelevant. She hurt me, and that was all that mattered, and even if that had been put to rest. I snapped out of it as Sarah started to wake up. She rolled over to come face to face with me. Holy crap, she said and scrambled out of our position. Yeah, that's what I thought. I didn't want to wake you, so... I just kind of froze up and tried to go back to sleep, I said. Yeah, right, you liked it, she teased. I can like something and want it to stop. It's called overstimulation, I told her. Okay, that's just gross. It was nothing like that, Sarah groaned. What was it like then, I asked. She turned red and it was adorable. That's what I would say if I still liked her, which I didn't, not one bit. I must have moved in my sleep, she almost yelled, and I had to shush her, getting her to mutter sorry. I didn't know you sleepwalk, I said. She was silent for a long time. 
Listen, we can talk about this stuff when we get out of here. I told her and she gave me a thankful look. You mean if, she asked. No, I mean when. We are leaving. You are going to live even if it kills me. We're almost to the bottom, I know it, I clarified. Thanks, but you shouldn't think like that. We're both going home, do you understand? She said and I nodded. A few moments passed until Sarah asked the golden question that was probably setting a few alarms in her brain off. How do you know we're almost at the bottom? She asked. When you passed out, I managed to carry you down a level. Just as I was about to go inside, I saw the lights at the end. It's only about 10 levels down, so we can get there by 1.30pm, I explained. You carried me, she asked. Her blush came back full force and I couldn't help the smile that overcame my face as she curled in on herself in embarrassment. Yep, I had to. I couldn't drag you down the stairs, I said. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Sarah changed the subject. I could tell that she was uncomfortable with being questioned, so I let it go. We packed up and hit the stairs, and we made it a couple of flights down before the other question that I was expecting came up. What time is it? Sarah asked. It's currently 12.37pm, I answered. What? That's insane, that means that, she trilled off. We've been down here for almost 19 hours, yeah, I confirmed. That's crazy, they probably noticed that we're gone. Sarah said and I agreed. Both of us disappear together, that'll paint some pictures. I said as I accidentally missed a step and stumbled a bit. I regained control of myself, but it was still embarrassing. Another 20 minutes in, we were there. We stood in front of the door looking at the blinking light above it that said, Authorized Personnel Only. We looked at each other and snickered as we pushed the door open easily. Top-notch security, I said sarcastically. Hey, this was 40 years ago. Plus, there's Splitter running about down here. Sarah defended it. I can't believe this, I said in amazement, which Sarah took for an exaggerated offense taken to her opposition. Well, I, that's whack. She said as she realized what I was seeing. We were looking at a massive room with pods full of ice. They had people in them, but they were dead and I could tell from the smell. That and the fact that the pods were open. A man was standing in front of two of the cleaner looking pods, examining two bodies, the bodies of Ryan and Hurley. Hey you, who are you and what are you doing with our friends? I said as we ran closer to the man. He tried to run, but I caught him easily. He was older, so I outpaced him without much effort. I unclipped my baseball bat from my backpack and pointed it at him, while Sarah unsheathed the knife that she had brought with her when we left the first staff room. Answer me now, I yelled. Shh, you'll attract them, the old man said and began walking. Come, he told us. We found ourselves obeying him for whatever reason. He led us to a room that once the door was closed was completely soundproof. We could be however loud we wanted and we took advantage of that. 
Do you have any weapons on you? I asked. No, he answered. Do you have any weapons hidden in this office? Sarah asked. Yes, he answered. Why? We asked simultaneously. To kill the monsters that you have so affectionately called the splitters, he told us. You've been watching us, I asked. I recalled a few cameras placed throughout the facility, but I hadn't thought that they would still be active. I didn't even think that there was anybody alive down here and I said as much. The old man chuckled at my question of how the heck he was still alive. If you store it right, a large enough number of canned goods can last you a century. I'm the only one left who hasn't been turned into one of those things and subsequently died, he said. How did they die? I asked. Starvation, the old man answered. The man sighed and put on a presentation, likely on that that he had not shown in a long time. So long that he almost looked giddy. The presentation started and the old man started talking. He introduced himself as Dr. Collar. Caleb, I said. Sarah, she followed. Okay then, Caleb, Sarah. How long have you two been in this facility? Caller asked. Nineteen hours and then some, I answered. We were here last night too. We were only a few hours that time and we didn't go this deep. Only to sub-level 30, was it? Sarah chimed in. Yeah, level 30, I confirmed. That's astonishing. You've survived for almost an entire day outside the lab with nothing but yourselves. Nobody else made it that far. Caller praised. I have a few questions about that. If you saw us, why didn't you try to help us? I asked. I couldn't contact you without revealing your location to the splitters. Keller answered. It was good enough for me, but it had some holes. Why not? Sarah apparently didn't feel the same way. The creatures can sense emissions in the electromagnetic spectrum. That includes radio waves. Keller explained. That satisfied us both, but a few burning questions came up after that. Why can they sense electromagnetic waves? Do they have some sort of organ that humans don't or something? Sarah said jokingly. Spot on. They evolved to be able to know when the guards with radios were coming. They ambushed the guards and killed them. That's how this place became the way that it is now. Caller said. That makes no sense. Evolution is the steady progression of a species over hundreds of thousands of years. It took us millennia to simply walk upright. Do you think we believe these things would develop a whole new organ in a few years? I ranted. Yes, these things adapt at an unprecedented level. You experience the splitter's hardened skin and acidic saliva yourself, I can see it. Those features are new to this specific breed. I didn't expect them to be as powerful as they were when they escaped. Caller muttered. Escaped? Sarah asked. Caller was silent for a few moments until they decided to tell the whole story of the splitters and what this installation was really for. After an hour, he could tell that we were getting tired. You kids should get to bed. I have actual beds in the back. I'm sure you would like to sleep and shower. 
Kyler said. We both lit up like Christmas trees. We thanked him for his hospitality and we got settled into bed nicely, clean and happy. I use this opportunity to relay the story of the splitters. A hundred years ago, the government came across one and decided to dissect it and saw how it worked. The creature was extremely strong, fast, and durable, and it became even more so after time. When the government decided to test an adaption theory of theirs, they introduced snake DNA into the splitter's body. It integrated perfectly and the monster became able to unhinge its jaw and eat people whole. It also shed its skin every so often as it grew. Next, these scientists introduced spider DNA. It grew fangs that injected a paralyzing agent into the victim. It became even deadlier. In the 1970s, they built this laboratory to farm the creature as they found that splitter DNA also merged harmlessly with human DNA. They proceeded to conduct experiments on humans and these splitter hybrids that they had made. Soon they had the splitters that we had encountered on our journey. These splinters were able to plant their DNA to humans and that human would slowly transform into a splitter over a day. It was very fast acting and there wasn't a cure. After a few years, they stopped getting volunteers for their experiments. As it came out that they weren't telling people that it was getting split, that they were signing up for. They started taking people, kidnapping people on the streets and bringing them down into the bunker and putting these splitter DNA into themselves. They made too much, however, and the hybrids revolted. They destroyed the facility and slaughtered everyone inside. It was mainly on the bottom few layers and they soon infested the place. But they starved to death in a few weeks, a side effect of still being human, if only on a basic level. That was 40 years ago though. Recently, Kalar had been receiving people from the outside and being forced to experiment on them the government seemingly having a renewed interest in the high-breeding project. I got the feeling that I wasn't being told everything, but I finally knew what these splitters were and I was ready to go home when we woke up. We had slept for about 12 hours, which was understandable since we had been through a lot of extremely exhausting things in the last couple of days. I checked my watch where I had clicked on a stopwatch when I first went down all that time ago. It was at a little over 47 hours. It was hard to believe that we had been down there for almost two entire days. But when you're inside for long enough, time gets muddy. I was pulled aside by Sarah who looked very uncomfortable. We went to a back room for privacy. I need you to do something for me, she said. Okay, what? I asked. I need some feminine hygiene products. Her smile was forced and I could tell that she would rather not be talking about this. Oh, 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 okay. I'll look around in the locker area. I saw it when we were about to sleep before. There's probably some very old but usable stuff in there. I said and set off for the room that I was talking about. When I got there, I found that the rooms were separated by gender, which was perfect. I didn't need to spend time searching around for female names and I could just head straight for the women's sections. Kyler was nowhere to be found. I thought that he would stop me but I was able to rummage around easily and find a few different things that I thought could help.
I didn't know much about this stuff, but my parents had always made sure that I understood the things my school taught me in sex ed, about both the male and female anatomy. They were awesome. I realized while walking back that I was sure that I would die while down there before we had found Kalar. What would my parents think? What would Sarah's parents think, or Jay? My parents would probably think that Sarah had led me down here, and Sarah's would think that I did that to her. It would be a whole mess if we never came back one day. It probably was a mess up there. We had been gone for a day and a half already and my parents weren't those kinds of hippie people. They were borderline helicopter parents. I made my way back and I saw Ryan and Hurley in the cryo chamber through the window and a question from before came into my mind. If Ryan and Hurley were turned into monsters, then how are they there, alive and well? according to the EKG machines at the pod side. Crap. I suddenly recalled how Jay said he got the idea to come down here in the first place. He said that he had heard two older men talk about the bunker and how dangerous it is, and that anybody who went in and survived would be a hero in his book. Gallard said that he had been getting sent people to experiment on, and I had been sickened at the time but now I understood a fact that I had brushed off earlier. He had known that we were there the whole time and was expecting people, preferably healthy young individuals to get the best results. We were sent to him on purpose so that we could get turned into splitters. I stuffed the products into my backpack and ran to where I had left Sarah. When I got there, she wasn't in the storage room anymore. I heard a scream suddenly and chased after it. It was a girl screaming. So unless Kalar had people in here that he didn't tell anybody about, though then it was Sarah. I busted the door down and rushed into the room where the screams were coming from. Sarah was trapped onto an operating table by leather restraints. She was straining against them, but she simply couldn't break them. Kalar was in a surgeon's outfit and was ready in surgical equipment. Scalpels, petri dishes, and tweezers. Hey, what are you doing? I yelled. I thought I locked that door, Kalar muttered. The locks here are all rusted, I said as I walked toward him, baseball bat in hand. Hey, don't do anything you regret, Caleb. We did that when we walked into this place. You've been waiting for us. I bet the phones here really do work. It's just that you shut them all down so that you could control who communicates with who on the outside, I accused. Well, you're a smart cookie. You and the girl are my perfect donors, Kalar revealed. What? I asked. Sarah was still struggling to get out of her restraints and I shot her a look that said, not yet. She understood and stopped trying to get out as vehemently. She couldn't simply stop trying to escape otherwise Kalar would catch on. She needed to look like she was struggling but losing the will to fight. I'm supposed to extract her sex cells, combine them with yours, and grow the fetus, injecting small amounts of splitter DNA along the way, Keller explained. I was speechless. I looked at Sarah, and she was trying harder than ever to get out of her bindings and leave. I smashed the buckle that held the restraints on her left arm, allowing her to undo the bindings on her right arm herself. 
When she had undone the binds and her legs, we both stood at the door. You're sick. Why, you think introducing splitter DNA will make it a smoother transformation? Sarah asked. Yes and no. There will be no need for a transformation. The fusion will be born with its splitter traits already manifested. It'll be the ultimate form of humankind. It will be able to take in what makes it stronger and expel the weak from society. It will be the chameleon, Keller said. While Keller was going on and on about his perfect creation, I swung at him and caved his head in. It wasn't pretty and it wasn't something that I'm proud of, but I did it. It looked like the skin of a grape with his brain splattered all over the floor behind him. His corpse sprawled across the floor at strange angles. Holy crap, Sarah screamed. I turned to look at her and she was looking at me like I was crazy. But if I allowed him to keep going, he would probably win against me. My hand was throbbing as the blood rushed under my burns. Come on, we're leaving, I shouted and we rushed to our temporary room. We grabbed our things and set off. Sarah and I sprinted to the soundproofed room that he had told us the splitter's origins in. We were about to make for the door when I saw a flashing set of numbers in my peripheral vision. I stopped and looked at them properly. They weren't just numbers, it was a countdown. It also said, time until detonation on it. So I got the message. Sarah, stop. This place is gonna blow in two minutes. There's no hope for us to get to the surface in time, I said, shrinking in on myself. I sat down, accepting defeat. Apparently Sarah wasn't having any of that and she kicked me for being stupid. Do you think that we should just sit down and die? Heck no. We've been up against the odds this whole time and we're still alive. Do you know how crazy that is? I think we should at least try, don't you? Sarah said. I felt a surge of something. Was it admiration, respect? I thought that it might have been my old crush for a second, but I pushed that down and stood up. Yeah, how are we going to get out though? I asked. Sarah looked around for things that could help and I thought back to our travels around the facility. What could have been useful to us now? I thought for a few moments until I remembered an idea that I had about the entrance that our group had used during our first journey into the bunker being an unused elevator shaft. I voiced that thought and got a look of pure amazement from Sarah. We sprinted all the way to where we approximated the shaft's bottom entrance was. We found it in about 30 seconds, meaning that we still had one minute left. We got in and the doors closed. What floor would you like to go to? An artificial voice asked me. I was too nervous to nerd out about how cool it was that the government had invented that kind of technology, when it was only now becoming even a little bit commonplace. Um, take us to the very top, I yelled. The elevator complied and started taking us up slower than I would have liked, but it was getting the job done. By my guess, we had about 40 seconds until the whole facility went up in flames. Can you take us any faster? Sarah was hyperventilating. I put my hands on her shoulder. Breathe, Sarah, breathe, I told her. Sarah started doing small breathing exercises in the corner while 
I examined the control board for the elevator. What speed setting would you like to move at? The voice asked, its calm tone actually bringing me down a bit and helping me focus. The fastest setting, I shouted. And it was like the whole world tried to come and punch me in the face. The speed of the elevator rapidly shifted and the difference in the speed was so great that I was pulled down. My legs not being strong enough to keep up under that kind of stress. I fell to the floor in an instant and so did Sarah. I crawled over to her and told her to hold on as I knew what was coming next. I was sure that the elevator wouldn't be able to stop itself when it got to the top and I couldn't see the writing on the walls that indicated what levels were on as they all blurred past. And that was when I realized that it was going to be worse than I thought. It was only a few moments until I felt the resistance of the ceiling of the shaft give out and we went flying through the air as I heard the countdown sound from inside the facility. I also heard the splitters climbing the walls of the shaft, so we were pretty much dead if the blast didn't kill them. Our elevator landed on the ground with a loud crash and I heard screams. They were distinctly human sounds, so I climbed out of the elevator, helping Sarah out after me and I ran towards them. I saw both our families standing next to the blown out hatch that led to the elevator shaft. We started running toward each other, but I was still concerned about these splitters and the incoming explosions. Everybody, get back, it's gonna... I didn't get to finish my sentence as flame erupted from the hole in the ground and everybody was pushed back. My vision was fuzzy for a second. It was always just a bit fuzzy from when I had accidentally been drenched in a splitter's fluids. I knew that I would have vision problems for life and my hand would probably always be weaker than the undamaged one. I hadn't seen my face yet but I was sure there was a long scar running across it from my left temple to the bottom right of my jaw, spanning the width of a couple inches. But then the splitters came. They were sooty and black and smelled like roasted chicken, but they were alive and that was bad for everyone. I quickly rushed to the one person that I didn't recognize, a police officer. I grabbed his gun and aimed it at the creature. Whoa, kid, he yelled, but I didn't care, because those things needed to die that very second. I wasn't going to let them kill us now after everything Sarah and I had been through. I shot at the splitter that used to be Ryan and it roared at me with its exposed maw. I shot it twice in the pink muscle and brain tissue that I knew was just above the roof of its mouth. The thin splitter dropped dead. I couldn't stop now though. My scarred hand was starting to throb from the firing of the gun, but I pushed through that pain and kept attacking the bigger, stronger splitter. The original... I didn't know who this thing had originated from, but it didn't matter anymore. That person was dead, and all that mattered was that this thing joined him preferably soon. I kept aggressing, firing three times at it to get it to expose itself, but it seemingly knew about its own inferiorities and kept its jaw shut the whole time. This was the last resort, but I unclipped my baseball bat from my backpack. It had scorch marks on it, which made me wonder how powerful that explosion was really supposed to be. I'm sure the chemicals had to be old, but I wasn't sure how all of that worked in the first place. I ran at the splitter with my bat in hand and leaped with my swing. 
My bad and I came down at the same moment, giving my blow extra power. The splitter got angry and yelled something at me in some language that I think it invented while it was kept prisoner by the government all that time ago. Now was my chance. I jammed the gun into the thing's mouth and pulled the trigger, watching as it fell to the ground in a heap. I grinned, but felt that hand of unconsciousness over me like I had the first time that I had defeated a splitter. I passed out again. I woke up in a hospital and I was fully healed. It was supposedly the next day, but I was allowed to see my scars. I was right about my face, spot out in fact. I had already seen my hand and I wasn't surprised to hear that I had sustained hairline fractures along my forearm from my already injured hand firing the gun in rapid succession. Nobody would believe us when we had talked about the splitters. Our families did, of course, though it didn't count because they had seen them with their own eyes as well. So naturally, I'm keeping my promise of the whole story and posting about this. I hope you believe me. I've written this whole thing out as a reminder for people to never blindly trust what you've been told. After all, my town held monsters and nobody knew. You never know what your town could hold, do you? Before we get into our next story, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about our sponsor, CB Distillery. Now, I enjoy exercising quite a bit, and whether it be going for a run or playing basketball at my local park... I do enjoy it, but the soreness and pain that comes afterwards isn't always the best. I had been searching for a remedy for a while when I stumbled upon a CBD, and it's definitely helped with the after-workout pain. CB Distillery has been my go-to ever since for CBD products because they only use 100% clean ingredients. That means no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. And with over 2 million satisfied customers, you know that they're reliable. If you're frustrated with a health concern that's not getting better, try CBD from the source that I trust, cbdistillery.com. Let me get you on the right path with my 20% discount. Just visit cbdistillery.com and enter my code MrCraves for your discount. No prescription required. That's cbdistillery.com. Promo code Mr. Creeps for 20% off. That's cbdistillery.com. I accidentally traveled to an alternate universe. The people here are normal. Written by Boris Basic. I glanced at my watch. 3.15 p.m. It was almost time to pick up Kevin from school. I leaned against my chair, staring at the spreadsheet on the screen in front of me, with the cacophony of voices typing and ringing of phones surrounding me from the other cubicles. I still had some work to do, but I figured that I would call it a day. It was Friday, and I could wrap it up on Monday instead. I stood up, giving time to my lower back to adjust to the sudden shift of position. I put my keys in my pocket and turned off the computer throwing a piece of crumpled up paper from my desk into the trash bin underneath. I rounded the corner, almost bumping into Katie. Whoa, sorry about that. 
I stepped aside, smiling. I'm going home already, Jack, she asked, clutching the folders to her chest and shooting me a grin. I took this as a sign that she wanted to strike some small talk and decided to indulge her. Yeah, I gotta pick up my son from school. Rachel and I wanted to take him and his friends to laser tag today. You should probably call it a day soon too, you've been working like crazy lately. I leaned against the cubicle to my left. Yeah, I know. Her expression turned sour. But I can't. Still gotta finish up a bunch of reports. Should be done by 5pm now. I shook my head. You're a workaholic, you know that. She chuckled. Alright, well, I'll see you Monday then. You have a great weekend, Katie. You too, Jack. She smiled and went her merry way, her heels resounding throughout the office with every step she took. I wondered for a moment how I had managed to almost bump into her, considering the fact that no matter how loud the other employees' voices were, Katie's high heels were ear-splittingly louder, regardless of where she was. You could basically pinpoint where she was at any given time just from that. I went into the bathroom and after relieving myself, went to the sink to wash my hands. As I did so, I glanced at my own reflection and stopped scrubbing out of surprise of what I saw. I looked like I hadn't slept in days. Heavy dark circles were beneath my eyes and my face, looked like I hadn't shaved it in weeks with the gray hair sticking out here and there. And my hair was messy and greasy. Had I really come to work like that? I swiveled my head left and right, inspecting my face, baffled by my own looks. I had shaved that morning into the touch of the hand. My face was as smooth as a baby's butt, but in the reflection it looked scruffy and unkempt. I leaned in closer, inspecting every detail, Amused and perplexed at what I was seeing. I smiled in order to see how I looked like that and then I froze. My reflection in the mirror was frozen. I stepped back, bumping into the stall with my back, gasping and blinking violently, trying to make this hallucination go away. But when I opened my eyes again, the reflection was still frozen as it was a few seconds ago. I leaned left and then right, staring in amazement at what was in front of me. It felt like I was looking at my own Skype video while it was frozen during a call. I leaned in again, placing my palm on the cold glass, figuring that this may not have been a mirror after all. This has to be some kind of prank. A camera is somewhere in here, I thought to myself. I looked behind myself in the corners of the bathroom still leaning against the mirror and as I inspected the bathroom walls, I suddenly felt a strong grip on my wrist. I jerked my head back in the direction of the mirror, only to see my reflection had a furious look on his face. He was holding me by the wrist through the mirror so tightly that his knuckles were becoming white. I struggled to pull away from his grip, but before I could break free, he reached through the mirror with his other hand, and grabbed me by the neck, pulling me closer. I tried screaming for help, but he squeezed too tightly, and all that came out was a barely audible gasp. 
He was pulling me closer by the second and I could now smell the stale sweat and booze on his breath, so clearly that it only added to my asphyxiation. His face was merely inches away from mine now and with one final effort, he jerked me towards himself with all his force. I closed my eyes, bracing myself for a crash with either my reflection's face or the mirror itself, but the impact never came and instead I felt myself fall backwards onto my butt. When I opened my eyes, I realized that I was on the bathroom floor. I stood up as fast as I could with my back against the stall, my legs shaky, grabbing at my neck which was still throbbing along with my wrist. I stared at my reflection in the mirror, seeing palpable fear in my own eyes. It no longer had the scruffy look, but resembled that of my real self from this morning. I stood there for what felt like a very long time and when I saw that my reflection wasn't making any movements different than my own, I dumbly waved my hand in front of it. The reflection mirrored my own movement perfectly, putting me at ease a little bit. Just then, another employee walked inside, shooting me a suspicious glance before heading into one of the stalls. I collected myself, looking at the reflection one more time and tidying up before heading out. You okay, Jack? Katie asked me with a concerned look on her face. Um, yeah, yeah, I nodded. Are you already done for the day? She asked. I frowned. Um, yeah, we talked about this a few minutes ago, remember? I gotta go pick up Kevin from school. Her look of concern changed to one of confusion now. She opened her mouth as if to say something and then closed it. While I should get back to work. She gave me a PR smile and left, her hurried footsteps echoing throughout the office. I left the office workspace and turned left on the hallway. See you Monday, Mark. I waved to a coworker who had passed by. You're going home? He turned around to face me. Yeah, you try not to work too hard either, okay? I turned to face him while backpedaling and then continued in the direction that I started. Um, Jack. Mark called my name. When I looked back at him, he was standing in the middle of the hallway with the same concerned look on his face like Katie. Yeah? I asked with a fake smile on my face. The elevator's this way. He pointed behind himself with his thumb. What are you talking about? That part is under renovation. See, the elevator's over. I turned around and pointed in the direction that I was originally facing and then stopped mid-sentence. At the far end of the hallway from wall to wall was a do not cross tape, marking a clear border between the pristine floor and the one littered with dust and other powdery material. I, uh... I started, staring at the tape and then turning back to Mark and looking behind his shoulder. Um, yeah, my bad, you're right. The exit is the other way. Are you feeling okay, Jack? Mark asked. Yeah, yeah, I just, you know, got confused a little bit is all. I chuckled and waved my hand in dismissal. Alright, man, well, you take care. I'll see you Monday. Mark forced a visibly fake smile and disappeared in the office space before I could even utter a you too properly. I looked back at the renovated area and then at the office door. 
What was going on today? First, the hallucination in the mirror, now forgetting where the elevator was. I had been working here for two years now, and there's no way the elevator could just switch places like that. Then again, I never went to the other side of this floor, so maybe there were two elevators and the main one was simply not functional. I shrugged those thoughts away and decided that I would take a nap as soon as I got back home, but the strange occurrences didn't stop there. On my way out of the building, I couldn't find my car at first and it was only after the security guard came to ask what was going on that he was able to point me over to my car, all the way on the other side of the parking lot. I thanked him, probably looking like a madman to him and made my way out of there. My son's school was close by, so I drove there, but when I arrived to my destination and parked my car, instead of the school being on my right, it was across the street. At this point, I started to worry a little bit. Had I suffered a head injury in the bathroom, and now all the information in my mind was jumbled up? My thoughts were interrupted when I glanced to my right and saw an old lady who was standing on the sidewalk, staring in my direction blankly. I ignored her and took off my seatbelt. I got out of the car and the sound of children's playful voices instantly filled the air along with the occasional adults shouting warnings to the kids. I looked to the right and the old lady was still staring at me with her unrelenting gaze. I nodded to her, which she didn't respond. What is it with old people? I thought to myself and crossed the street, getting to the front of the school where children in large numbers were exiting the building and making their way home, some alone and some looking for their parents. I recognized some of Kevin's classmates and figured Kevin himself would be out at any moment. I waited a few minutes with my hands in my pocket, occasionally glancing at my watch. Then one of the adults came out. It was Mrs. Steiner, Kevin's teacher. I approached her and when she looked up from her purse and caught my glance, she froze in place, staring at me with a blank expression on her face. Mr. Conley, she said, is there something that I can help you with? Um, yeah, I said, surprised that I even needed to explain. I'm here to pick up Kevin as he's still inside. Her blank expression changed to that of a serious concern. She stared at me for a few seconds before saying, Are you here to pick up some of Kevin's belongings? Did he leave anything at school? No, what, no, I'm here for Kevin. At this point, I was probably as confused as she was. I think you need to leave now, Mr. Conley. She responded after a pause. And I strongly believe you should get some help. She took a step forward, but I got in her way. What? What are you talking about? Just tell me where Kevin is. Did something happen to him? I insisted, furious and scared. She sighed. I know the truth is hard to accept and I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. But if you come here again, I'll be forced to call security. She tried to leave again, but I grabbed her by the arm, attracting these suspicious glances of some kids and adults nearby. Mrs. Steiner jerked her head in my direction. She looked like she was ready to pepper spray me by this moment. I let go of her arm, realizing suddenly that I was being too violent. 
Mrs. Steiner, please, just tell me what happened to Kevin. Was he in an accident? Is he alright? I pleaded. She stared at me for a moment as if to contemplate what she should do and then she said, Mr. Conley, I'm sorry, but your son died six months ago. Is this a joke? I shouted louder than I intended, attracting more glares around me. Mrs. Steiner was clearly shocked but said nothing. Where's Kevin? I demanded. Kevin! Kevin! I frenetically spun around looking for my son, completely disregarding the scared kids and parents who were holding their children close to themselves and evacuating the school. Mr. Conley, please! Mrs. Steiner interjected, but I ignored her, calling Kevin's name over and over. Where's Kevin? Where's my son? I paced back and forth around the schoolyard, while people were avoiding me in a large arch. Two security guards rushed in and before I knew it, I was forcefully being dragged out. Their pleas for me to leave, which later turned into threats about calling the police, they fell on deaf ears as I kept trying to find Kevin. I ended up being thrown out and when I tried to get back in, they blocked my path. Please, I have to find my son. I tried to get past the guards, unable to control my panic. Sir, I'm warning you, if you don't leave right now, I'll be forced to call the authorities. He put his palm on my chest and pushed me back. And I finally snapped my full attention to him and with hesitation, I returned to my car. I had to call my wife Amanda. She would assure me that everything was okay, right? I mean, she had to. I whipped out my phone, scrolling through my contacts. I dialed her phone number, glancing out the car window in the direction of the guards who hadn't budged from their location. They were still shooting me suspicious looks, probably waiting for me to leave. I waited for Amanda's phone to start ringing, but it never came. I looked at the screen and saw that the call had been disconnected. I dialed again, but the same thing happened. I slammed the phone on the steering wheel out of frustration and put it back in my pocket. She was home, so I had to go there. Maybe she already picked Kevin up and this was on elaborate prank. I remember hoping against hope that that was the case. I put the keys in the ignition and started up my car. I drove off with screeching tires, probably attracting the glances of even more people along the way. It took everything in my power not to run all the red lights on the way home. But I knew it in my hot-headed state that being pulled over by the police would only exacerbate the situation. When I finally pulled up in front of my house, I got out of the car so fast that the seatbelt initially pulled me back. I slammed the car door and strode to the entrance, forcefully trying to open the door. It was locked. I put my keys inside, but they didn't fit for some reason. I rang the bell and then knocked three times, loudly shouting, Amanda, are you home? The sound of a key turning was heard on the other end and the door opened. But it wasn't Amanda, in front of me stood my neighbor Nick. Jack, is everything okay? He asked worriedly, holding the door with one hand. As soon as I glanced behind my neighbor inside his home, I realized what a huge error I'd made. I was looking at my neighbor's home and not my own. I'm so sorry, Nick. I, uh, 
drinking already, Jack. He smiled and tried to shrug it off as a joke. I chuckled nervously. Yeah, sorry about the disturbance. Hope I didn't interrupt anything. And don't worry about it, buddy. Take it easy now, will ya? Yeah, you too. I smiled and turned around across the street where my home actually was. I approached the door and tried to open it. Locked. I pulled up my keys and hesitantly put them in and sure enough they fit like a glove. I pushed the door gently revealing the dim interior. What I saw inside was my home and yet it wasn't. The foyer floor had my shoes scattered all over the floor. Amanda always made sure the foyer was tidy and the shoes were organized. So this looked like she had been away for a while. There was dirt on the floor indicating that two of her had gone and hadn't bothered to wipe their shoes first. The living room had barely any sunlight gleaming through. I shut the door, further decreasing the natural light inside. Amanda, Kevin. I shouted and held my breath, waiting for a response or any noise. None came. I went inside the living room and again was faced with the feeling of surrealism at what I saw. Everything was exactly how I had left it this morning, but some things were off. There were discarded booze bottles on the table and under it some flipped over. The contents spilled and dried on the carpet. There were grease-stained papers and bags from fast food all over the place. What happened here? Amanda's crazy about keeping the place as clean as an operating room. So to have her leave it like this indicated that something was very wrong here. I approached the table and saw that there was a flipped over photo next to a half-eaten burger. I picked it up and inspected it. It was a picture of Kevin. I stared at it and suppressed the tears welling up in my eyes. I was confused by everything and scared. Scared for myself and for my wife and son. I was afraid that I would never get to see them or hear their voices again. Just then I heard a vibration in front of me and moving the food papers away I saw a cell phone. It was my own cell phone, no doubt about it. I unlocked it, revealing dozens of missed calls and messages. Most of the messages were people asking me where I was and if I was alright. As I scrolled through, I saw that some messages were from Amanda. The first thing that struck me as odd and confirmed my suspicions was the fact that she was in my contact simply under the name Amanda rather than wife. I read her messages as fast as I could. Jack, are you okay? Hey, call me back when you get this. Why aren't you answering? I'm starting to worry. There were missed calls from her as well. I called her number and waited for the phone to ring. After just one ring, she picked up. Jack, is that you? Her voice resounded on the other end. Amanda, yeah, it's me. Where are you? Where am I? Where are you? Do you know how long you've been gone? Your disappearance was filed to the police and they're looking for you. What? Amanda, listen, I don't know what's going on, but where's Kevin? I went to pick him up from school and then everything just got jumbled up. Mrs. Steiner said that he's dead. Amanda, what's going on here and where's our son? I heard Amanda sigh over the phone. Jack, I think you should get help. Listen, I have to go. It's best we... Amanda, please, can you please just talk about this? 
I don't know what's going on and I feel like I'm losing my mind. I can't remember anything, please. There was silence over the phone and then she said, I'll be there in 20 minutes, but I don't have much time. Thank you. I hung up and stared at nothing for a while. Would I finally get some answers when she arrived? In the meantime, I decided that I should check the rest of the house out. I went up the stairs and into the bedroom. It was almost as messy as the living room with bottles of liquor on the nightstand and on the floor. Dirty clothes were piled up in the corner of the room and the bedsheets were hanging off the side of the bed. The curtains were draped over the windows, dimming the room entirely. The whole room reeked of booze and sweat. I noticed that all of Amanda's belongings had been removed from the room and only mine remained. Before I exited, I noticed some meds on the night table next to the half-empty liquor bottle, antidepressants and sleeping pills. I left the room and closed the door, immediately eliminating the odor coming from inside. I went down the hallway and slowly approached the door on the right. I grabbed the knob and hesitated. I took a deep breath and pushed the door open, revealing the interior of the room. Kevin's room was exactly how I remembered it. Everything was in place and tidy, contrasting the rest of the house's mess. His bed was made and schoolbooks rested upon the desk facing the window. Sunlight gleamed inside, like a sanctuary of light from the darkness in the house. The TV screen reflected dust from sunlight, and on the floor below was his console with a single game neatly resting atop it. I looked around, absorbing my surroundings, inexplicable sadness suddenly overcoming me. Where are you, Kevin? What happened to you? Tears welled up in my eyes again and I turned around before I could allow myself to start crying and closed the door firmly. If I could, I would build a wall over the door just so that I wouldn't have to look at it again and be painfully reminded of my loss. And before I could process that thought clearly, I heard the doorbell ring. I ran down the stairs as fast as I could and opened the door, letting in a gust of fresh air. Hello, Jack. Amanda looked horrible. Her hair was unkempt and she had heavy bags under her eyes. Her skin was pale and she looked like she had lost a ton of weight. Amanda, I said dumbly, staring at her. I hadn't even thought about how I should behave when she arrives. Do I hug her? Do I act friendly? According to what I knew, we seemed to be living apart, so I detest the waters first. Can I come in? She asked. Yeah, yeah, sure. I snapped back to reality and stepped aside, letting her in. She took off her shoes, glancing at the dirty foyer along the way, and then went straight to the living room. I knew she was probably disgusted by the mess in front of her. Sorry about the mess, I said. I, uh, it's alright, she said, standing uncomfortably in the middle of the room. I cleared the table and sat on the couch, telling her to feel free to do the same. She sat opposite me and looked around at the room once more. Amanda, I have a lot of questions. I swallowed and leaned in, jumping into the topic right away. Likewise, you disappeared a week ago. Where did you go? She looked at me judgmentally. I have no idea what you're talking about. 
Listen, I was at work just now and I know it doesn't make sense. But I was supposed to pick up Kevin from school and we had plans for the weekend for him and his friends. I finished work earlier and all of a sudden everything got confusing. Mrs. Steiner said that he died when I went to pick him up and I just... I don't. A laser tag. What? We were going to take him and his friends to laser tag. Amanda smiled. Yes, that's it. I went to pick him up and everything else was just a mess. Nothing is where I remember it to be and people look at me strangely. I don't get it. Jack, that was six months ago. That was the day Kevin died. I stared dumbfounded. I had somehow traveled six months into the future and completely forgot about everything during that time. Amanda continued. Jack, this is clearly a coping mechanism. You suppressed everything from that day on to deal with Kevin's death. I understand it, but you need help. You can't run from this. How, how did he die? She stared at me and her expression turned from judgmental to hateful. You killed him, Jack. She said through her teeth. The next few days were a blur. I spent the majority of my days drinking and sleeping. I kept replaying the conversation with Amanda in my mind over and over. You killed Kevin, Jack. No, that can't be true. You're lying. It's true, Jack. You were speeding and the car brakes didn't work and... You survived unscathed, but Kevin... There was barely anything left of him. She started crying. No. No! I grabbed my head pacing around, feeling like my heart was going to explode. It was an accident, Jack. You didn't mean to kill him. But I never forgave you. I exhaled sharply, wiping my tears. So you decided to leave me, I asked. I had to get away. The house brought too many painful memories for me and you were in your own world as well, drinking yourself unconscious daily and I had to get away from it all. I wish I could say that Amanda and I had a recollection and that she forgave me, but by the time she left, we were both heavy-hearted and tired from crying. I had no strength to ask her to stay, even though I wanted her to be with me through such a difficult time. I saw the resentment in her eyes and knew better than to ask. I hated myself for ruining our family and I hated myself for not remembering my child's death. I knew it was probably poetic justice for me to go through this pain for the second time, but I begged God to take it away. The pain was so excruciating and exhausting that I even contemplated ending my life with pills. And then three days after my meetup with Amanda, I woke up at 3pm with a hangover and went into the bathroom to clean myself up. I looked in the mirror and saw what an empty husk I'd become. My hair was messy, my beard unkempt and scruffy, the bags under my bloodshot eyes adding to my age, and I didn't care about it though. I bent down to wash my face and when I stood up, I sobered up immediately at what I saw. In front of me was my own reflection and yet it wasn't my own. The person in front of me looked clean and tidy with a perfectly shaved face, a healthier skin tone and neat hair. Suddenly I remembered what had transpired at my work bathroom a few days ago. 
I had been graving and completely misplaced it from my mind. I stared at my reflection and its lack of blemishes and my anger boiled. I was angrier than I had ever been before in my life. It was this reckless monster who took everything from me and I hated him for that. I wanted nothing more than to reach into the mirror and bash his head over the sink and over and over until his bloody unrecognizable pulp remained. This urge was so irresistible that I felt myself unwillingly raising my head and diving into the mirror, grabbing the wrist of the other jack with force I never knew that I had. My reflection suddenly looked scared for his life and it fed into my satisfaction of wanting to hurt him. I reached with my other hand as well and grabbed him by the neck, squeezing tightly. I started pulling him towards me, with the intention of dragging him over to my side and brutally murdering him. I yanked him with all my might and just before he uncontrollably crashed into me, I found myself stumbling backwards. I stood up, looking at my reflection, ready to grab him once more, but he was gone. Just my own dirty reflection remained. I sighed, leaving the bathroom and heading into the bedroom, stumbling onto my bed face first. Honey, is everything okay? I heard a voice which put all my senses on edge. Had I imagined that? Honey, the voice repeated. A familiar, soothing voice. It was Amanda. I rushed downstairs, practically jumping down the last five steps and sure enough, there she was. But not the Amanda that I saw a few days ago, but my Amanda as I knew her before. Beautiful, happy, and perfect. Jack, what happened to you? She looked at me with confusion. Is this a costume or something? You're Jack the Hobo now, she chuckled. I stared at her in bafflement. My brain could not process what I was seeing. Jack? She shot me a suspicious glance. Um, yeah, I asked. Are you going to pick up Kevin or not? He's almost done in school. I opened my mouth dumbly and then closed it, muttering a week. What? Your son Kevin, you're supposed to pick him up. He has laser tag today, remember? She repeated. Right, right. I ran for my keys, feeling a surge of ecstasy overwhelming me. I'm supposed to pick up Kevin, that's right. Jack, wait. Amanda started, but I was already in the car. The urge to run the red lights was even stronger than last time, but I resisted it. Especially since I knew that I was responsible for Kevin's death by driving. The school was not where I remembered it to be, though. It wasn't across the street this time either. It was all the way on the other end of the street. This raised some suspicions with me, but I ignored them. I didn't care. Kevin was alive and that's all that mattered. I ran to the school and didn't even need to look. There he was, just how I remembered him the day that he left for school when I last saw him. He smiled widely when he saw me and ran to me. I embraced him tightly, telling him how much I missed him and that I would never let him go. When I finally let him go, holding back tears of joy, he simply wrinkled his nose and said, Ah, Dad, you stink. I laughed, kissing him on the forehead and pretty soon he and I were on the way to the car. As I let him in and closed the door, I heard a voice behind me. Don't do it. 
I turned around and it was the same old lady that I saw a few days ago in the same spot. The one who was staring at me from the pavement. He's not your son, Jack. She shook her head. You know that well. You're taking someone else's son. Don't do it. I scoffed. I was caught by surprise so suddenly that it took me a moment to respond. Listen, lady, I don't know who you think you are, but you need to mind your own business, all right? Now, if you'll excuse me. You're not in your own world. Your son is alive and there's still time to save him, you just... All right, that's enough. I yelled and rushed inside the car, ignoring Kevin's worried gaze as we sped out of there. Are you okay, Dad? Kevin asked. I looked in the rearview mirror and saw that the old lady was still staring at me. Yeah, I'm fine, buddy. You ready to kick some butt and laser tag? I asked, much to his enthusiasm. A few minutes later, we pulled up in front of the house and Amanda was standing in front of the entrance, smiling. Oh, there you are, she said. Did your dad drive recklessly? Kevin looked at me and I shook my head, winking at him. All right, let's get you inside. Lunch is ready, Amanda said. I stared at them, the two people who meant everything to me in the world, and I suddenly got the instinctive urge to turn around. As I did, there she was across the street. The old lady from school. She stood there, our gaze is meeting. She shook her head slowly, and I sighed and looked back at Amanda taking off Kevin's backpack as he was telling her about something that happened at school. I could just live with my family even if it was fake and nobody would ever know the difference. I glanced at the old lady again. Hey Amanda, do you think that you could take Kevin to laser tag? I have something to take care of. What now? But this was your idea. I thought you wanted to do this. I know when I do and I'll be there later, I promise. I approached Amanda and put my hands on her face, kissing her gently. I knelt down and ruffled Kevin's hair, saying, You listen to your mom now, all right? As I opened the car door, I looked at them one more time. You promised, Dad. Don't be late, and we're getting pizza later. Kevin said, smiling widely. Yeah, otherwise we'll have to go on without you. Amanda smiled along with him, ushering him inside. I smiled back bitterly and watched until the door closed behind. I looked at the old lady and she was still staring at me. I did a U-turn and stopped the car in front of her. Get in, I said to the old lady after rolling the window down. She got in, smiling for the first time since I saw her. I knew you would make the right call, Jack, she said. Who are you really and how do you know me? I asked, putting my cup of coffee on the table. The cafe that we were in had a plethora of young people in it, filling the interior with their voices, allowing the old lady and me to talk in peace. I know everything about you, Jack. I know what you've been through lately, the strange events that took place in the mirrors. You know about that. Yes, and that's why I'm here. What is done has to be undone. You probably figured it out by now. Most of it anyway. I shook my head confused. I glanced at the other tables to make sure that nobody was eavesdropping, even though the topic of our conversation would most likely just have people dismiss us as lunatics even if they heard something. 
I still felt like a student who was cheating on an exam and afraid of being caught. All I know is strange things started happening a few days ago and I feel like I'm losing my mind. Nothing is where it's supposed to be. I went to pick up my son and the school was across the street. I went home and it was my neighbor's house. It's like, I trailed off. Like you've entered a mirror. She finished my sentence, a blank expression on her face. Yeah, and then my son was dead and my wife and I were divorced. What's going on here exactly? She leans back in her chair, never breaking eye contact. You switched places with the Jack from a different Mirrorverse. Mirrorverse? You mean multiverse? No, I mean Mirrorverse. That's what the scientists call it. Similar to the multiverse, there are worlds out there. Millions and millions of infinite worlds. All the same and all different. You've seen them. I stared at her, expecting her to continue. Jack, being able to travel from one world to another is an extremely rare gift. But for some reason you seem to have it. You're able to see into those worlds and even enter them. But going in and out is not good. Why? Why is it not good? I was sitting on the edge of my seat, proudly wide-eyed, while she looked like she was talking about something nonchalant like recipes for cooking. She continued, It creates an imbalance. It creates distortions and paradoxes in other worlds. We can't allow that to happen. The mirrorverse where Kevin is dead. Jack got his son killed in an accident. It may have happened a million other times to a million other Kevins, but none of them would have the impact and balance like that specific one. He's the starting point of everything. I took a sip of my coffee, giving fluid to my dry throat. She inhaled and continued. It may have happened to a million other Jacks, but they would simply mourn Kevin's death and move on. Some of them would stay in an unhappy marriage and some would get divorced and most of them would commit suicide or die from alcohol or drug abuse. But not this Jack. He couldn't come to terms with what he did. So one day he accidentally saw you in the mirror, a version of himself which still had a happy family. And he was overtaken by anger. He hated himself so he tried to kill you and inadvertently switched places with you and then realized that Kevin was alive in your world. So he wants a world where Kevin is still alive and Amanda is with him. He wants to have a happy family again. For a moment I felt pity and understanding for my imposter. She shook her head. Not exactly. He's lost his mind. He believes that his son was taken from him. He can't cope with the fact that he lost his own son, and he hates himself for it so much that he wants to punish every version of himself in every world. How? By killing Kevin in all the worlds. What? My shout attracted a few glances for a moment. He wants to punish all the Jacks in all the worlds by taking the most precious thing away from them. But we switched worlds days ago. Oh god, if he picked up Kevin then. Your son is still alive, but we don't have much time, Jack. I felt a surge of panic coursing through my entire body like electricity. I have to go and save Kevin. Now. Don't worry, he's still okay. 
and we still have time to save him. She reassured me after noticing my fear, and I know exactly where to find him. The panic that I felt before started to abate and I leaned in my chair, scratching my beard looking at the old lady. All these things just seemed so far-fetched. Different worlds and mirrors which you can travel through, having millions of doppelgangers out there. This all seemed like a movie script and I never even stopped to ask myself if I was maybe losing my mind. Maybe this lady was just as crazy as I was and was feeding into my illusion. Everything she said made sense, but somehow it was still hard to believe. Who are you, lady? I asked. She shrugged. And just a guardian. I try to keep a balance in all the mirror verses. That is and always was my duty. So why can't you do something about this? Can't you just return us all to our own worlds or something? She shook her head. No, Jack, I can't meddle in these affairs. I can offer assistance. But you must be the one to restore balance. And what happens to the Jack I switched places with today? For all we know, there could be hundreds or thousands of others who did the same. The first Jack may have started an infinite lobe. I said, It all begins and ends with the Jack who took your life away. Once you do what must be done, everything will return to normal and balance will be restored. He can't be allowed to cause any more damage. He has to be stopped. What is it that I must do? How do I stop him? I turned my palms towards her in an asking manner, getting impatient. She leaned in so that we were so close to each other that I could see every pore in her face. Her unrelenting gaze locked with mine. You must kill him, Jack, she whispered. It is the only way. I sat in the car holding a mirror in my lap. The old lady was next to me. The sunny day slowly turned into a gray one, bringing with the droplets of rain which resounded on the roof of my car. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do here. I shook my head, looking at the lady. I felt like a teenager in a driving test and she was the instructor, but unlike my actual instructor, she was very patient. Stare directly in the mirror, she said. Now what do you see? I stared at my face, shaking my head once more. Myself? I said unsure. Good, now try to remember what the first Jack looked like. Remember what he did to you and how he took your life away. And once you start feeling an overwhelming emotion, either sadness, anger, hate, or such, reach into the mirror. Try it. I glanced at the mirror and then felt her hand on my shoulder. Remember, no matter what happens, you must kill him. Otherwise, this was all for nothing. I stared at the mirror once more, trying to remember the Jack in the work bathroom mirror. He looked back then, very much like I did now. Messy hair, unkempt beard, pale face but more so, and I distinctly remember smelling booze on his breath. The anger that I felt earlier toward him was gone and was instead replaced by profound sadness which a father who lost his child could understand. I saw my own reflection changing, hair and beard as slightly growing and bags under the eyes becoming heavier. Without further thinking, I slowly and gently reached into the mirror. 
I felt the cold glass touching my knuckles as the mirror stopped my hand from going through. I dropped the mirror back into my lap and shook my head in frustration. I don't think this is going to work. When I looked to my right, the old lady was gone. I looked around and saw her nowhere in the streets. A few people were walking by with umbrellas, but that was it. I then realized that I was on the other side of the street, or rather the street was inverted. I knew immediately that I was back in my own world. I started the car and slowly drove off. The lady said that they would be at the corner of this one street that sold video games at exactly 512. I felt my jacket to see if my gun was still there, very careful not to somehow lose it along the way. I had to sneak into the house while Amanda and Kevin were gone to retrieve it, and I did not feel content by having to use it, let alone kill someone. But in the end, my son's life was at stake. Not started twisting in my stomach, anxiety like before a big tester presentation, and with each mile I got closer, it only got worse. I tried to keep Kevin's face in my mind's eye in order to prevent myself from chickening out, in case I really had to pull the trigger. I arrived at my destination soon and parked the car further away to avoid suspicion from the other Jack. It was 5.05. The street was empty and the sounds of occasional cars driving across the wet roads were heard in the adjacent streets. The video game store at the corner was the one where I would regularly take Kevin to buy him games, so I kept a close eye on it. 5.12. Two people emerged from the shop. An adult man and a child. Jack and Kevin. It was surreal seeing myself with my son there as if I was watching a hyper-realistic movie. Kevin had a smile on his face and was pointing to the game in his hands, telling Jack something. My doppelganger listened closely, saying something in return, smiling equally. He looked a lot healthier and cleaner than last time. Seeing them together like that, this imposter with my son, made anger surge through me and all feelings of anxiety were gone. This was my time to shine. I stepped forward on the pavement towards them. They hadn't seen me yet. Jack! I called out to my copy and saw a smile drop when he realized who he was looking at. Kevin seemed perplexed as well, looking at the both of us, wildly swiveling his head left and right. Without a word, Jack picked up Kevin and started running. Stop! I shouted, sprinting after them. They ran around the corner and disappeared into the crowd of people in front. I pushed my way through the herd, much to the cursing and frustration of them. Jack was running straight towards a police officer, so he turned inside a nearby building. He could have just told the cop there was a crazy man with a gun after him, but I guess he panicked. Also, he didn't know that I had a gun on me. I followed closely and when I went inside, they were gone. The light above the elevator was on though and it showed that they were going to the top floor. I was already exhausted from running but decided that I had no choice but to run 10 floors up. I climbed the stairs as fast as I could, making sure along the way the elevator wasn't stopping or changing directions. When I finally arrived, I saw them exiting the door that leads to the roof. 
thank God for slow elevators. I thought to myself and followed them. I felt the cold air and droplets on my face once more and immediately looked for my son. Jack and Kevin stood at the edge of the roof. Kevin scared and Jack wide-eyed, panicking. You can't have him, he shouted, holding my son's hand firmly. Dad, no, Kevin cried, looking at the evil Jack. It's okay, Kevin, everything's going to be okay. I shouted over the sudden wind which became strong. I slowly stepped closer. Stay back, he shouted, pulling Kevin closer and taking one step towards the edge. This has to end, Jack, I said, taking another step closer. You don't understand. You can't understand what I've been through. Oh, I do understand, Jack. I know what happened and I felt the same pain that you did when you lost Kevin. The brakes didn't work and the car crashed. It wasn't your fault, Jack. He looked down and then at Kevin. He looked like he was on the verge of tears. I'm sorry, I... He started. Hey, it's okay, it's not too late, but you have to stop this. Kevin did nothing wrong, you need to let him go. Jack looked at Kevin and he knelt down in front of him. He hugged him and said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean for all this to happen. You mean the world to me and I let you down. He let go and stood up. Kevin stepped back and they shared a moment of exchanged glances. Then a loud bang echoed on the roof. Jack looked down at his chest and saw a red stain which increased by the second and then he glanced at me. I lowered my gun, my hands shaking so hard that I could barely hold it. Jack looked at Kevin before he simply collapsed on his back with his eyes still open. Kevin screamed and I rushed to embrace him. I comforted him as I watched Jack's body fade before me and I wondered if this outcome was really necessary. The rest of the day was a blur. I was just happy to have Kevin back and knew that despite the trauma he had just been through, he would be okay. Amanda insisted that he had a bad dream and that seeing two Jacks wasn't possible. I agreed with her and comforted my son. That night I put Kevin to sleep in his room and I tucked him in and he looked at me and said, Dad, I once had a similar dream to the one today. I smiled. Oh yeah, was it scary? I don't know, you were fighting with your twin and I woke up before it ended. Oh, don't worry, if my evil twin does come, I'll kick his butt. Just then, Amanda came to the door. Jack, there's somebody at the door, she said. It's for you. It was 10pm already, so I wondered who it could be, but I had some idea. When I opened the door, sure enough, the old lady was there. I wasn't really glad to see her, but at the same time, I was really grateful for what she did for me. I've got five minutes for a walk, Jack, she asked. I nodded. I closed the door behind me and followed her down the street. Well, you did it, Jack. You got your life back. Yeah, but was killing him really necessary? I asked. I'm afraid so. Payment was required. Payment? What do you mean? She stopped and turned towards me. Jack, I haven't been fully honest with you. When the Jack you killed had started messing with the Mirrorverse, he did some irreversible damage, and payment was required. Balance had to be restored. 
The Jack who took your son didn't start a killing spree and it never was his intention. I lied about that. He simply wanted a life where he would have his son back. But you said... Oh, I know if I had told you the truth, you never would have done what needed to be done. She paced around. This was the only way. But that's not all, Jack. I stared at her in silence, the feeling of dread forming at the pit of my stomach once more. She continued. When you killed Jack today, you started an unstoppable cycle. In exactly six months, a Jack from one of the mirrorverses will enter your world and kill you. I widened my eyes, opening my mouth, ready to interject, but she interrupted. You can't stop it, Jack, I'm sorry. A life was traded for a life, and I know how miserable you would have been without your son. So I did you a favor and traded your life for Kevin's. Don't you think that's fair? I didn't even know how to start processing this. I opened my mouth dumbly once more and then closed it, swallowing spit through my dry throat. I looked down at my shoes and listened as she continued. I suggest you spend your remaining time with your family. Don't travel through mirrors anymore for I fear the damage could be even greater this time. Live the rest of your life to the fullest. And Jack. I looked up at her to see her smiling. Thank you. She said as she turned around and disappeared into thin air. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.